0: Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. How did the working class fight early British capitalism? In the early 19th century, the Industrial Revolution was rapidly creating a big new social class in Britain, the working class. Workers produced huge amounts of new wealth for the ruling capitalist class, but had appalling conditions and no say in politics. Sound familiar? Trade unions appeared for the first time, formed by workers to fight in the workplace. But they quickly realised that this alone was not enough. The bosses used political power to restrain or reverse what the workers could win by industrial struggle alone. The Chartist movement was the world's first working-class party. Its People's Charter demanded a massive extension democratic rights for workers with the goal of using that to improve their material conditions. But increasingly, experience taught Chartist workers that petitioning alone was not enough either. Ultimately, revolutionary struggle was the only way for workers to gain power or even win more rights within the capitalist system. How did the Chartists develop their ideas and methods of struggle? What was the outcome of their movement? And what can we learn from it today? This episode of Socialism looks at Britain's revolutionary working class, Chartism. So we've had a number of episodes which are looking at the revolutionary history and revolutionary traditions of the working class in Britain, which are often treated as though they don't really exist. The idea is out there that the working class in Britain is a conservative force that will not fight and certainly wouldn't challenge for power. And here to dispel some of that myth with us today is Scott Jones from the editorial department of the Socialist Party. He works with us on the Socialist newspaper, and I'm sure you'll recognise his voice from interviewing and doing the announcements on previous episodes. Hello, Scott. Hello. Now, we're talking today about Chartism. Chartism is not widely taught in schools outside Wales, but it was a seminal political movement of the working class in Britain. So, what exactly was it?
1: Yeah, you're right, it was very important. And what it was, it was a movement in the 19th century, which was really the first mass movement of the working class anywhere in the world. Mm. The working class in Britain at the time was probably the world's first working class because of the Industrial Revolution and so on, and this was a mass movement of that working class. Chartism took its name from the People's Charter, as it was called, which was a list of demands drawn up in 1838 by the London Working Men's Association, which was basically a trade council, or trade union council as we know it today. And they drew that list up and demanded this list of things because property qualifications at the time prevented workers from not only standing for parliament, before me even
0: having a vote. So, so what do you mean by property qualification? So it
1: meant that you had to own property, own a house, own land, mm. specifically land really, which meant that it was the preserve of the wealthy, standing and voting as well in that sense, because obviously no working class people well, barely owned anything at the time, especially land. So it was mainly even just the aristocracy traditionally in the British political system at that stage, mainly who were standing and so on. But then, of course, you know, the sort of new capitalist class started to acquire wealth and land and so on so they could stand as well. But the working class were barred, you know, essentially from the process. So the demands that the charters had were for suffrage for all men aged 21 and over, Mm -hmm. all men aged 21 and over to have the vote, equal-sized electoral districts, essentially today they're all quite similar sized constituencies and so on at the time they varied widely so you had what were known as rotten boroughs mm-hmm. where you had very few electors within one borough so an MP could get elected just by having his mates and neighbours voting for him
0: essentially. And things like the ancient universities had their own MPs as well didn't they? That's
1: right yeah exactly so the third demand on the charter was voted by secret ballot right. that was because some people who did have the vote at the time you know it wasn't sort of secret where you go into a booth away from anyone else knowing more your vote was so there was obviously the possibility of pressure being applied you by people in politics then well your employer i suppose yeah it's if you voted the wrong way right precisely that sort of thing yeah the fourth thing was an end to the need for a property qualification for parliament as we've explained why and then pay for members of parliament as well which at that stage as well the other thing that made it a preserve of the wealthy was the fact that you didn't get paid to become an mp now that's all well and good if you own a business or you're an aristocrat who's got the income from his land or whatever you know you don't need a wage to go into parliament and represent people but obviously if you're a worker the only way you can do that is by being paid and that money replacing the money you earn as a worker. And then the other demand was the annual election of parliament. Right. So every demand except the last one is now being met. And on paper, of course, a lot of them today in 2020 sound like simple democratic demands. But in the mid 19th century, know, they were very radical and concrete demands for working class political representation. There was no working class political representation at the time. And they weren't just demanded for democracy's sake. You know, because the fact that it would make the democratic process fairer or a bit better, you know, they formed the basis of a movement designed to give a voice and platform to the working class so that they could fight to change society for the
0: better. So why did this movement, the Chartist movement, to fight to change society for the better of the workers, we should add, why did it erupt at this time in history? So the Industrial Revolution
1: was in full swing. And like I said, the working class as we sort of know it today was being created. It was being sort of thrown together in these big cities, big towns, big industrial centres. Mm. And the Industrial Revolution you know, had really been characterised by class struggle, obviously from the start, in Britain with clashes
0: at Peterloo, Pentrich, and elsewhere, all these other events. And of course you can hear more about the Peterloo massacre and the class struggle which lay behind it in episode 35 of Socialism on Peterloo. I don't think we actually have an episode on Pentridge. Could you just give a little
1: bit about that? We don't know. But it was an event in the East Midlands. We've had an article on in the paper, actually, so you could probably find it on our website. It was another event where workers clashed with local employers, landlords fighting for you know, economic demands and so on. And there were many little, you know, sort of flare-ups and such all across the country during this period. You know, Frederick Engels, who I think we've had podcasts on recently, he was a collaborator of Karl Marx, of course. And both of those were actually in contact with the Chartists at the time. But Engels wrote in his book, Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, The Chartism was the compact form of the proletariat's opposition to the bourgeoisie, so essentially the workers' opposition to the capitalists, the bosses. Okay. He says that the struggle reached its height between 1838 and 1842, with the summit of that struggle being events in South Wales, especially the Chartist uprising in Newport in 1839. Despite this, he refers to the movement as the English Chartists. <laughs> well, <laughs> lay him off because of his overall contribution and, of course, his you know, language at the time. But yes,
0: England being the imperial nation, so all of Britain was referred to quite commonly yep, as England. That's
1: correct, yeah. So much of what the Chartists did and fought for was illegal. Much of it was arguably a very raw form of anti capitalism, especially in 1839. And the reason I mention this is because in the last couple of months, the Tories want to ban schools in England from using material deemed anti capitalist or from groups that broke the law. Right. And so on. You know, we might see that in the news. And this could apply to teaching about the charters, as well as a whole host of other things. But growing up in the Welsh With Valleys. The suffrage. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. But growing up in Wales I was fortunate to learn all about the Chartist struggle because it was taught as local history so in my hometown of Blackwood there's a Chartist bridge there's a statue of a Chartist and so on and we were taught about it and that's because many who took part in the Newport Uprising and the movement at that time were from places like Blackwood which before the industrial revolution was just a small little village in the valley's rural area. But these places, because they had coal or other resources which needed to make iron and so on, they become these industrial sort of centres where people were sort of dragged from the countryside, thrown together in workplaces very quickly. You know, and that's why. The movement sort of erupted at the time. You had the rapid industrialization of places like South Wales, that I mentioned, both of the north of England, the Midlands, Scotland, and so on, where, like I said, areas were transformed into these powerhouses, employing thousands of workers. So the working class at the time as well was very new. It didn't have a lot of experience, but also didn't also have the baggage of defeats of the past and sort of like any conservative traditions which might have seeped into sort of sections of the working class or their movements, which we've sort of seen later on. But they were... And you
0: had the recent example on the continent of things like the French. Revolution as well. Precisely,
1: yeah. yeah. So all these conditions
0: determined the consciousness of these workers. So what was the extent of this mass movement of the working class which sprung from this radical political consciousness that was developing? Well, it's
1: fantastic. I mean, it'd be fantastic now, but for the time as well. The statistics, for example, are incredible. So in the lead up to the uprising in 1839, branches had sprung up in 42 towns and villages in South Wales, with an estimated 25,000 workers involved. <laughs> <laughs> this was in the space of a year following the drawing up of the Charter. Wow. It was a real mass movement. Also, very organised, so membership cards were issued. Some meetings were attended by half the population of some villages. It had its own press in the north of England and elsewhere. And some of these branches even had women's branches, despite the fact that, of course, the Charter only at the time called for votes for men. But this shows that the movement went beyond the question of suffrage. Right. You know, like their husbands, fathers, sons and brothers, life was extremely tough for women. Wages were low, work was backbreaking, and dangerous mines, ironworks or cotton mills in the north of England. You know, this was about more than just the vote. As William Price, a Chartist leader in South Wales, said, Oppression injustice and the grinding poverty which burns our lives must be abolished for all time. Wow. That shows what this movement was about. (laughs) So this is serious stuff.
0: How did the Chartists fight for their demands?
1: So this was at the same time as workers were forming a lot of the first trade unions, and there was increasingly bitter battles with the employers, you know, and these convinced workers at the time they needed to change society for political means as well. Okay. Move on to the political plane, so to speak. So... A nationwide petition was originally launched by the Chartists to send to Parliament in the hope of winning the six demands. It was signed by one million workers, which again is incredible for the time. Yeah, it would be quite good today. Exactly. One million workers and support signed it, but it was inevitably rejected Mm. by Parliament. This rejection then created a crisis in the Chartist movement and a big discussion erupted because the Chartist movement at the time had already started developing what were called a moral force wing and a physical force wing. The split mirrored and represented the classes involved in the movement because the moral force wing was mainly made up of the sort of middle class reformers and activists and so on, which were supporting the movement. While the physical force arose from the working class, the moral force wing believed that reforms could be won by persuading the ruling class of the moral force of their argument, as the name implies, you know. So that would obviously not happen. That was the attempt with the petition, which was rejected.
0: And in fact, you can learn a little bit more about how these utopian socialist ideas evolved and were later rejected by Marxism in episode 95 on socialism, utopian and scientific.
1: Yeah, and physical force chartists were influenced by revolutionary ideas instead, like the French revolutionaries you mentioned and other events. And they believed in the
0: use of force to win democratic rights. So when you say they believed in the use of force, is it that they just wanted to have a fight or did they see that that was the only way of doing it? Well, no, of course, they were up for a fight, but they obviously saw
1: that Parliament had rejected this mass petition, a million workers. They'd been fighting in trade unions and other sort of fields to try and improve their lives. Uh, You know, this wasn't cutting it. Ruling class
0: were not... So the rich were not just going to give ordinary people hand over all their wealth and privilege and power because they asked nicely and made convincing arguments. <laughs>
1: exactly, yeah. So they were prepared to go you know, as far as was necessary to fight and not just sort of try and win over Parliament and the ruling class by arguments alone. Yeah. yeah. So at this time then, the Moral Force chart's position was completely undermined by Parliament's rejection of the petition, of course, So there was a national convention in October 1838. Of the Chartists. Of the Chartists, yeah, which broke up with very little strategy coming out of it, you know, to take the campaign forward, except for the vague calling of a sacred month, which was basically a general strike. And that shows, actually, mind, even compared to today, that even the reformers of that period were forced to call for a general strike, even though there wasn't a lot of organisation behind, you know. It shows that even at that stage, the way this sort of movement of travel and this movement and so on.
0: So the actual situation which they were facing, despite the fact they wanted to limit themselves to kind of drawing room discussions with the rich and powerful as, as though that would change things. The very fact that it wasn't working forced them to call this sacred month, why do they call it that?
1: I think it's just because of the religious terminology at the time and so on. Okay, <laughs>
0: but the main effect of it was that people weren't to go to work and the religious dressing up didn't really matter. It was That's to, right, yeah, it was a general strike in
1: all but name really. Right. So even though the physical force chartists obviously supported this, they also secretly prepared a plan to use the disappointment at the rejection of the petition to prepare for an insurrectionary movement to seize power in a number of areas, (laughs) starting with South Wales. Right. So they wanted political power, which was expected to make a material difference to their lives, and knew those in power would not give up easily, as we've said.
0: So they were trying to organise some kind of mass movement for a sort of workers' revolution in Britain. No wonder this isn't widely taught. So how did they try to do it?
1: No, exactly like you say, and as we've said about the organisation of the movement, then the preparations for the insurrection were equally serious, at least in some parts of the country. So like in Southeast Wales, the preparations began for a march to Newport because that was a sort of seat of power at the time in the sort of area and they hoped this would trigger other risings around the country so preparations it was thought were made in London, Yorkshire, Lancashire, Newcastle, Birmingham, the west country and Dundee Hmm. and on the day of the rising itself 65 delegates actually gathered in Newcastle awaiting for a signal from South Wales (laughs) so that they could fight as well and of course as we've sort of pointed out the moral force chartists the reformists at the time they were swept along as well. A central figure in South Wales was John Frost now, he was an elected leader and representative from the Monmouthshire Chartist Association and a speaker of the National Convention. I think by trade he was a lawyer, a solicitor, and he was of the moral force wing. Mm. But he supported the physical force wing and clearly participated as well in the decision to organize these uprisings following the failure of the petition. Mm. But in reality, he had no stomach for a revolutionary movement and was distrusted by many workers in South Wales, actually. He aimed most of his speeches at respectable society, as we've said, to try and appeal morally to them. He constantly urged restraint wavering between the capitalists and the workers. From the start, he tried to back off from the insurrection, showing the splits in the movement, but also the movement's revolutionary working class, the splits between them and the reformist supporters. Mm. Other working-class chartist leaders in South Wales, though, were more militant and determined to win power through force if needs be, and were mainly involved in the preparations for this. Weeks before the insurrection, a delegation of Blackwood workers warned John Frost, Mr Frost, if you will not lead us... Neither you nor your family shall live in Newport. We are beginning to suspect you. <laughs> of course, the threat is clear. You know, yeah. that If you don't support us, if you're not with us, you're against us. A workers' militia was formed and drilled under the bosses' noses. Sections, as they were called, which were originally formed to collect money to sustain Charter's prisoners, these were improvised into militia of 11 men. Each section had a captain, and the sections were grouped into troops, companies, and brigades. And plans were made to fraternise with troops sent to Newport. Within a few weeks, 13 of these troops are deserted, being found new jobs and rehoused within the community by the <laughs> workers and the chartists. And of course, what this also shows, and probably how they were easily able to fraternise with these troops and so on as well, is a lot of working class people at the time, men were forced and conscripted into the army mm. to fight the British Empire's wars, essentially. Taking the King's Shilling, as they called it, You know, and treated horrendously and so on. And Some of these have probably been through their experience. They knew how to fight and they were prepared to do it to better their lives and to win this movement. So the rest of the troops were eventually withdrawn before they could desert, <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> With, you you know, which it. is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of weapons and so on, hundreds of picks were secretly stored in caves in the valleys. These were taken from the workplaces, the mines, and so on. And firearms were stolen where they could be, and these were you know hidden to be later used as well. And in fact, there's a cave north of Tredegar in the valleys, which can be visited to this day, called Charter's Cave. That was where it was thought they stored weapons. And also places like the Coach North's pub in Blackwood, which is now a house. You know, places like that were centres of this organisation. And, you know, I've read books up until even relatively recently, like in old houses and stuff like that, secret compartments in the walls were found where things were probably stored and mm. so on. This was a really serious movement. Because many of the workers, you know, they wanted to go beyond just winning the original demands at this stage. They wanted the insurrection to give them control of the mines and the ironworks themselves, for example.
0: So, as you've indicated a couple of times, they didn't just want to stop at taking political power, but to use that political power to take the economic power out of the hands of the capitalists, who they'd been fighting on the economic plan, as you pointed out, through the newly formed early trade unions. So it was economic as well. That's right. Well, I mean, one charter's branch declared, the ironworks do not
1: belong to the present proprietors but to the workmen, and they will very shortly have them. <laughs> you know, the workers wanted control of their own workplaces. They were the ones doing the work, producing the wealth, producing the coal, and so on. They wanted control of those workplaces so they could better their lives and have power in society. You know, and there's another great anecdote from the time of while their husbands marched on Newport, two women having the following conversation in a place called Gear. One of them said, I want some coal, and I don't know what to do now. The colliery is stopped. The other says, oh, don't worry, go and take some coal off the trams on the tram road. But what will Mr. Powell, the colliery owner, say if he should year of it? Oh, never mind him. The Gear colliery will be my husband's tomorrow when Newport is taken. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. And that's the confidence these workers had as well, as showing their determination and seriousness. So the authorities later discovered, actually, that the owner of that colliery, where the anecdote's from, he'd actually be marked down to work as a coal cutter if the miners had taken power. <laughs> he was going to be in the ranks of the workers and, and be forced to you know, produce the coal himself. Yeah. So... On the 3rd of November 1839, the day of insurrection arrived. Seven and a half thousand armed workers eagerly began the long march from the heads of the valleys to Newport. They'd been preparing long enough. They knew that some would not return, but believed that those who did would be free. The plan was to seize power in Newport, Cardiff, Abergavenny and Brecon and then appeal for support in England and Scotland and the previous places I've mentioned where there was other uprising schedule to start. And it was time to coincide with the sacred month, Which had been called by the General Convention. So this is this de facto general strike. That's correct. Yeah, looting was forbidden, on pain of death. You know, these workers had discipline Mm -hmm. as well. The Times newspaper actually later marvelled at the level of organisation of these ordinary working people. The Times said, "This was no momentary outbreak, but a long-planned insurrection, deeply organised, managed with a secrecy truly astonishing." And these workers, as we said, it was like economic as well, and they'd sort of drawn out a rough economic programme, working it out. Including taking over the mines as mentioned, the ironworks, but also expropriating the banks Mm. in the area. And George Shell was one of these marchers. He was only 15 years old, he was a carpenter, and he wrote to his parents on the eve of the march. I shall this night be engaged in a glorious struggle for freedom. And should it please God to spare my life, I shall see you soon. But if not, grieve not for me, I shall have fallen in a noble cause. Farewell. Sadly, George Shell was one of those killed the next day.
0: Wow. It's reminiscent of some of the extraordinary brave struggles we see in this day and age, in countries like Chile and Hong Kong. But it happened in Britain and it can happen again. Now, you've foreshadowed something there with the sad death of George Shell. What was the outcome of the insurrection?
1: So despite all the serious and painstaking preparations I've outlined, they lost the element of surprise. As the earlier sections waited for hours for the slow detachments to catch up mm. on this long grueling march. And you can imagine what the weather was like in Wales in November mm. and so on. This was a really sort of tough march, tough conditions, and so on. So the Pontypool detachment did not arrive in Newport in time at all. By the time the workers who did arrive in Newport marched down Stow Hill, a hundred soldiers were waiting and prepared in the Westgate Hotel, egged on by the local brooding class who were hiding behind the rifles <laughs> in the hotel, of course. Despite entering the hotel, as some of the Chartists did, dozens were cut down by gunfire. Following the defeat, South Wales was placed under martial law, and hundreds of the Chartists who had taken part and had been organising around South Wales, they were arrested or forced into hiding. Eventually 82 were sent to trial, and five leaders, including John Frost, were sentenced to be hung, drawn, and quartered which is sort of brutal medieval medieval punishment. They were actually the last people to be given that sentence. So that shows how terrified the ruling was of this,
0: even though it didn't work. They wanted to really
1: make an example. That's right. and In fact, they were so terrified of the backlash against this sort of medieval brutal ruling and the fact that the movement could kick off again, that they commuted these executions to transportation to Australia because Mm. of this outcry and threat of further unrest, as I just mentioned. But the struggle for the Charter didn't end in Newport. It continued through the 1840s and 1850s with a mass movement of further petitions, demonstrations and general strikes. There was also internationalism as they supported and were in touch with other movements in other countries like the 1848 revolutions, for example, across Europe Mm. and so on.
0: Yeah, which broke out just after Marx and Engels had written the Communist Manifesto.
1: That's right, and almost coincided with that, on the 10th of April 1848, a new mass demonstration was announced by the Chartists to be held on Kennington Common, in southwest South West London. So the plan was, after this mass demonstration, to lead a procession which would carry another petition to Parliament. Mm-hmm. However, in anticipation of this, Parliament revived
0: a statute dating into the time of Charles II. Well, so hang on, so let's just put this in context. Charles II, who was restored to the throne after the English Civil War and Revolution, so this is open counter-revolutionary legislation they're reviving here. That's what they're frightened of.
1: Exactly, yeah. And what our statute forbade was more than ten persons from presenting a petition in person. <laughs> oh my god! So <laughs> therefore, obviously, blocking the mass demonstration from walking en masse, you know, up to Parliament. Mm. Because the authorities knew, of course, that the Sharks were planning a peaceful demonstration, but still wanted a large-scale display of force to counter the challenge. So as well as bringing in this statute, there was 100,000 special constables <sighs> recruited to bolster the police already existed. The military threatened to intervene as well if working people made any attempt to cross the Thames. Wow. So the planned procession to Parliament to present the petition was cancelled. The meeting was peaceful and finished without incident, after which the petition, with as many signatures, was sent to Parliament in three cabs accompanied by a small group of charters leaders, presumably less than 10. OK. <laughs> <laughs> Again, of course, this was rejected by Parliament. And surprise, surprise. didn't yeah, win the first time. Exactly. And it eventually actually took the vote. You know, it, it took until between 1884 and 1918 for all male workers to eventually be conceded the vote. And, of course, this was due to another increased period of worker struggle in the new unionism movement, the founding of the Labour Party, for example, and, of course, revolution in Russia. Mm. And it was until 1928 that all women were given the vote.
0: So it took the threat of this revolutionary movement of the working class and of continued unrest and strikes and outbreaks of struggle and the threat of the end of capitalism as well. Of course in Russia in 1917, the vote was granted to women immediately. That was one of the first things which the Bolshevik government did. But it took all of this to actually get the basic democratic rights which many people take for granted today. So this idea that capitalism just, you know, necessarily entails democracy its nonsense. Workers had to fight for every last scrap of it. So what further... Effects did Chartism have on what came next?
1: Well, as I mentioned towards the beginning, all but one of the Chartist demands have been won, of course. Right. But the struggle for real democracy. That's annual
0: parliaments. Yeah. That's right. Yeah.
1: But of course, the struggle for real democracy and political representation for the working class continues, as we know. Mm. You know, having resisted the vote for workers, the ruling class eventually conceded it, as I've said. But they aimed to ensure that workers' representatives were absorbed into the system. Firstly,
0: through LibLabism, as it's called, which was... So LibLab stands for Liberal Labour, yeah? So this is where the trade unions and workers' representatives stood through the Liberal Party, which was the main party of the industrialists, their bosses at this time.
1: That's correct, yeah, it's an alliance which misrepresented workers in many ways, you know. Mm. So then after the Labour Party's historic formation, which replaced this alliance, which was a huge step forward, of course, but Labour's leaders were overwhelmingly absorbed into the capitalist establishment through inducements, you know, sort of bought off by the system, mm. you know, as we see right up
0: until this day, really. Oh, that's right, with uh, 70 or 80,000 pounds a year salaries, the charters couldn't have foreseen that. But of course, what started out as a democratic demand for workers, the end point now, it's been turned against them to try and absorb anyone who enters with good intentions into Parliament's into the establishment, as you say, which is one of the reasons, of course, why yeah. the Socialist Party has always stood for workers' representatives on a workers' wage. And when we had three MPs, they took the average wage of a skilled worker in their constituency. And we think that should be the case for all MPs.
1: That's correct, yeah, of course. And the Labour Party's transformation now firstly into capitalist New Labour, mm-hmm. and now the fact that New Labour and the Blairites have retaken the party after the Corbyn years – it means that once again the working class needs a mass political party for itself, going right back to what the Chartists were fighting for and almost what Chartism represented in outline. And an example of Labour's degeneration, by the way, was the smashing up by Labour Council in Newport of the beautiful 200,000 piece mosaic on a 35 metre wall which really beautifully and cleverly depicted the march of the Newport Charter's uprising in 1839. That was demolished a few years ago to make way for a shopping centre. You know, real (laughs) cultural vandalism smashing up our history. And by the way, the centrepiece of this shopping centre was the Debenhams. And of course, as we know, Debenhams is now basically cease to exist, mm. sadly, with the loss of thousands of jobs and so on. But it means that this shopping centre that they built with lots of public money to replace this mural and so on, smashed up in the process. It means now that this shopping centre is just empty and a sort of you know, real reflection of Labour's degeneration.
0: I mean, God, the, the symbolism there is, you know, if that was Fitch and you say, that's a bit on the nose, isn't it? You know, that's a bit heavy-handed. My goodness, it really shows that sequence of events in Newport The defeat of the working class within a political organisation it had originally founded to try to fight for its interests. And it also shows the complete bankruptcy of the capitalist system as a system to take society forward for anyone, let alone for the working class right now. So, once again, today, as you've said, there is no mass political vehicle for working class people. So what lessons should we draw from the revolutionary actions of the Chartists to apply today?
1: Well, as I've said, their demands still apply today. We're still fighting for them. The Chartist struggle for democratic rights as a step to a workers' democracy and workers' control of the economy and so on still remains today. You know, and it should just be remembered, actually. Yeah, it was the working class struggle a threat of revolution which won these rights in the first place, and we're obviously still fighting for. But Chartism and the defeat in Newport, you know, also showed the need for a centralised revolutionary party that can assess the forces, the conditions, the timing, and so on, and strike when the time is right and not ahead of the working class mm. in the rest of the country, as did happen in Newport and so on. And that's why the need not only fight for what the charts were fighting for, but also the need for a revolutionary party, you know, the Marxist ideas and so on, is vital. And it's also worth pointing out as well, actually, that whilst we're talking about suffrage and the vote and so on, is that the ballot can still be as revolutionary today as it was then, as we've seen in Sudan and Belarus where mass movements, you know, people have taken the streets on the back of elections and disputed elections and so on. Or even demanding the right to vote at all like we had during the Arab Spring. Precisely, yeah, exactly. So whilst the need for a revolutionary party is vital and that's what we're building we also need to build a mass workers party so that workers do have something at the ballot box to vote for in britain so we're part of the trade unionist and socialist coalition tusk Mm -hmm. so tusk was established in 2010 by the socialist party and others like the rmt transport union bob crow and so on to enable trade unionists community campaigners socialists workers and so on to stand against pro-austerity establishment politicians the ones who have been bought off and are not fighting for the working class anymore under a common banner you know standing hundreds of candidates. We've gained hundreds of thousands of votes over the years and we'll be standing again next year in local elections, in the Welsh Parliament elections, the Senev and so on. But it's also worth looking, that's the fight today, but also the lessons of the Chartists. You know, Lenin quite succinctly sort of summed it up. He described the Chartists as the first broad, truly mass and politically organized revolutionary movement. Mm. You know, something to really be inspired by and to learn from. And the task now, of course, is to take those lessons and inspiration from the Chartists who have fought before, you know, to build a similar movement today with the benefit, of course, of the writings of Marx and Engels and their experience since, and the example and experience of the Russian Revolution, Lenin, Trotsky and others. And also our own history as well, of struggle in militant and other socialist party to fight for workers' control and socialism today.
0: Well, well, as always, if you like what you've heard, recommend us to your co-workers and friends. Donate to help fund us, and if you agree, if you want to see what the charters did actually succeeding today, if you agree, join the socialist party. Thanks very much, Scott. Thanks. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party. The England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Scott Jones, speaking to me, James Ivans. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? We need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers' International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We rely on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to the capitalists. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.